Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Mark chapter 15. As you know, we are studying our way through the Gospel of Mark. And we are almost at the end of the Gospel of Mark. I'm trying to keep us on track so that we will actually complete right before our Advent series. So we don't have too much longer to go. Last week we were studying uh, Jesus' trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. Remember that is the Jewish Supreme Court. This week we'll be studying Jesus' trial before the Romans. And when it comes to the Romans, it seems like the one who holds all the cards determining Jesus' future is a guy named Pilate. If Pilate says he dies, Jesus dies. If Pilate says he lives, Jesus lives. But while, in a human sense, Pilate holds all the cards determining Jesus' fate, in an ultimate sense, it's not really Pilate that will kill Jesus. It's God the Father that will kill Jesus. It's true. Because in eternity past, God the Father had a good plan. The good plan is that he would send his son and that his son would die in our place for our sin. So while this morning as we study this text, it looks like things are out of control and evil has its way and Pilate is the one who chooses to take Jesus' life, the honest truth is none of this is out of control. This is all happening exactly according to God the Father's plans. So his son would die to save you and me. Hopefully you have the text open. Stand out of reverence for God's word as I read. We're going to be looking at 20 verses this morning. So follow along with your eyes on your copy of God's word. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes. And the whole council... And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Well then, what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having, Jesus, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. 
and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. That ends the reading of the word. You can be seated. Uh, two quick thoughts before we jump into our study this morning. First of all, we're going to be talking about a lot of the beatings of Jesus and the sufferings of Jesus this morning. And to be truthful to the text, I'm going to have to explain the text. And for some people who have a weak stomach, that may not be comfortable. Now, I will try to be tactful, but I also will try to be truthful. And I want to simply prepare you for that. The second thing I want to tell you is that Mark, as he looks at the trial of Pilate before the Romans, he of the gospel writers gives us the shortest uh, accounts and the least amount of detail. But I've decided to do something a little different as we teach through this text. I'm going to insert uh, information from other gospel accounts along the way so I can give you a complete idea of what happened to Jesus and so you can understand the full chronology of what happened to Jesus. Because oftentimes we get confused. What happened when? Because some gospel writers talk about some things and other gospel writers don't talk about those things. So this will make for a little bit longer of a text that we're working through today, but I trust it'll actually be a much better sermon because you'll understand the truth of everything that Jesus went through. Remember where we have uh, left off in previous weeks. It was 12 at night to around 1 in the morning when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers came and arrested him. Jesus' trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin took place roughly between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. I told you last week that Jesus goes through two different trials, one before the Jews and another before the Romans that we are studying this morning. And I told you that each of those trials has three parts to them. So he has six parts to his trials before morning. Last week, we looked at the first two parts of Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. The first part was when they brought him to Annas. Annas was not high priest. Um, he was the, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the current high priest. He had been a high priest a number of years before. He was currently in his 80s, but he was the evil brain behind much of what took place in the Sanhedrin. We described him last week sort of like a mafia boss or a, a godfather. And so while Caiaphas was gathering the rest of the Sanhedrin, and he was going to be gathering some lying witnesses against Jesus, during the intervening time they brought Jesus to Annas, who was going to... Um, asked Jesus questions and try and trump up charges against him. Annas asked him many questions, but Jesus said absolutely nothing. Finally, Annas was frustrated. He sent him to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the high priest, because the rest of the Sanhedrin was gathered in his house. The first part of the, of the Jewish trial has ended. The second part 
of the Jewish trial of Jesus before Caiaphas begins. What happened at that point is Caiaphas brought in many lying witnesses, witnesses that they had bribed to say all kinds of nasty things against Jesus. But under oath, those witnesses, when they were cross-examined, all fell apart. Everything was falling apart for Caiaphas. He didn't have any way of being able to condemn Jesus to death, so he tried the ultimate in Hail Mary passes. He would see if Jesus would blaspheme. Caiaphas said to Jesus, Tell us the truth. I'm putting you under oath. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Blessed? And finally, Jesus spoke. He said, I am. In fact, I'm the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father. And you will one day see me coming in the very clouds of heaven. Essentially saying, right now you are judging me, but one day you will see me returning to judge you and the rest of the earth. Abundantly clear who he is. And as you can imagine, the Jews went bananas. We read last week how they began slapping him and and striking him. They put a bag over its head and began hitting him. And that's where we left off last week. As we begin this morning, we're going to see the third part of Jesus' Jewish trial. Let's start with this, if you're following along in the outlines. Jesus was silent before Pilate when he was accused. And the very first part, first verse in this section is the third part of his Jewish trial. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Last week we learned that the Jews were not allowed to conduct a trial at night. So to make this trial legal, they waited until the sun came up and came to the same conclusions all over again. It was probably around 5 a.m. at this point, just as the sun came up. They also had a problem. They had convicted Jesus of blasphemy, uh, claiming to be the very Son of God, which was adequate reason for them to kill Jesus, but certainly not adequate reason for Pilate to kill Jesus. Pilate would not see him as worthy of death. Maybe he see him as worthy of being a lunatic, yes, but not worthy of dying. So they needed to come up with new charges against Jesus that he had never been convicted upon in the first place. Now at this point, I'd like to jump to the Gospel of John. Because the Gospel of John tells us some things that took place. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. I find this a little humorous. They are going out of their way to make sure they can murder Jesus, who is a completely innocent person, yet they don't want to go into Pilate's house because they would be ritually defiled and not able to eat dinner that night. They're more concerned with being able to eat dinner that night than they are with killing an innocent man. And you see, they're completely whacked at this point. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? 
Pilate comes out and he's thinking that the reason they brought Jesus is they want him to act as a judge. They have something they can't decide about a particular individual, so they would give Pilate the information and Pilate would make the, the decision. But they don't want Pilate to act as a judge. They simply want him to act as their executioner. And this is the way they respond. You can see that. And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate, don't you trust us? We have a terrible evil man that we have brought to you, this terrible man named Jesus. Pilate isn't a dummy. He didn't get to be in his position because he wasn't smart. Do you think Pilate has never heard of Jesus? Wouldn't Pilate be the one to have provided the security during Jesus' triumphal entry? Don't you think Pilate's soldiers were watching that when thousands of people were hailing Jesus as king? Don't you think Pilate's soldiers were watching as Jesus taught in the temple that week? Wasn't it Pilate who would have to approve the soldiers earlier that night to go arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Pilate knew a fair amount about Jesus, and he knew that he was all of a sudden being manipulated by the Jews, that he's not a terribly evil man. So you can see how Pilate reacts to this. Pilate said to them, Well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, Well, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Pilate knows he's not a criminal. And he also understands at this point that they are really issued, they're really concerned with Jesus regarding Jewish customs and Jewish ways. And there's really no, like, capital charge against him at all. So we come to the Gospel of Luke now. We find that Luke tells us some of these charges they had manufactured against Jesus in that early morning trial. And then they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the King. So these are the false charges that they are bringing Jesus up on when it, they bring him to Pilate. Pilate, um, he's telling us not to pay our taxes. Oh, we love paying our taxes, Pilate. We don't want anybody to tell us not to do that. And Pilate, he's saying that he really is the king. We love Caesar as our king. You really don't want this guy around challenging Caesar. All that's happened between Mark chapter, verse, Mark chapter 15, verse 1, and now you can see it picks up in verse 2. Because all of a sudden, Pilate asked him, So are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, Well, you have said so. Pilate ignores this whole thing about taxes. He knows that's not true. What captivates him is this idea that Jesus would be a king, a king of the Jews. Here's why it captivates him. What do you think Jesus looked like at this point? Remember what the Sanhedrin had done to him just a few short hours before? 
how they had beat him in the face. They had slapped him, put a bag over his head, and pounded his face. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat blood. His clothing was covered in blood and sweat. His face was beaten and bruised and disfigured. You're the king of the Jews. You don't look like a king. You look anything like a king. And Jesus responds by saying, well, you have said so, which doesn't seem like much of an answer. It doesn't translate out real well from the Greek. What in essence Jesus says is, I am a king, but I'm not the kind of king that you think of when you talk about a king. Now, to prove that to you, uh, I've told you I'm weaving in some of the other gospel writers. We go down to the Gospel of John, and John gives us more details about this conversation at this moment that took place between uh, Jesus and Pilate. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this wor- from this world. So he's a king, but not the kind of king that Pilate would think of. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And here comes the part that's in Mark. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this reason I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, Well, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told him, I find no guilt in him. Now, let's jump back to the Gospel of Mark. We're on to verse 3. And the chief priests accused him of many things at that point. Lots of accusations. All of these are false charges. Uh, Some translations don't say they accused him of many things. Some translations say the chief priests at this point accused him harshly. If you go to Luke 23, verse 5, it says uh, the Jews urgently kept saying to Pilate that Jesus stirs up trouble everywhere. You go to Matthew 27, the parallel passage, it says there was a long list of accusations the Jews had against Jesus. All of these are complete fabrications. All of these are lies. And then it says in verse 4, And Pilate again asked him, Well, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. Doesn't this sound like modern politics at this point? The best way to get rid of your opponent is to make up a whole bunch of false charges about your opponent so nobody ever believes or trusts your opponent. Anybody see that? Same thing. By the way, you're going to see modern politics all throughout this study today. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was simply amazed. 
Jesus doesn't even bother to defend himself off of all of these charges. In fact, the more that the Jews keep making up these charges against Jesus, the more obvious it becomes that they're completely lying about Jesus. But here's one of the problems. According to the Roman legal system, until Jesus makes a a defense of himself, technically he cannot be set free. And what is Jesus doing and saying? Nothing. Pilate is wondering, this guy is innocent. How can I get out of executing him? Because he doesn't want to say his thing. And then he has an idea. And we read about it in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 23, verse 7. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. This brings us to the second part of Jesus' Roman trial, as he goes from Pilate now to Herod. And let me remind you a little bit about Herod. There's a number of Herods in Scripture. The original Herod is known as Herod the Great. He's the one who controlled a large area of real estate. Uh, he's the one who actually started the Jewish temple and re- rebuilding that, which took a number of years, almost 80 years to build. But when Herod the Great died in 4 BC, he decided to divide up the territory he ruled among his four sons. The territory of Galilee, where Jesus comes from, fell to the man named Herod Antipas, one of Herod the Great's sons. He also, like his father, uh, liked to build things. He built about 12 cities. Shows you he was a pretty industrious guy. But while he could build cities, he couldn't build marriages. He originally was married to a daughter of a neighboring king, but he wasn't, wasn't real stable in that marriage. He met his brother's wife, began to have an affair with her. The woman's name was called Herodias, eventually convincing her to divorce his brother and marry him. So Herod ends up being a guy who's committing incest and adultery, plus he was a murderer, not a good guy. You remember John the Baptist? This is the Herod that John the Baptist confronted. And as a result, John the Baptist lost his head. But who did John the Baptist constantly talk about that he was preparing the way for? Jesus. So do you think Herod actually wants to see Jesus, since he's heard about Jesus? Yes, he wants to see Jesus. He's heard about Jesus. But until this time, they have never had a chance to meet one another. And as we go to Luke, we find that's exactly what happens. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. And the chief priests and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Herod's excited. I've heard this Jesus guy does all kinds of miracles. Maybe I could get him to do a miracle in front of me, like my own personal David Copperfield show. That's what he's looking for. But Jesus doesn't do any miracles for him. 
Herod keeps hitting him with tons of questions, but Jesus says absolutely nothing. Meantime, the Jews have followed Jesus, and they're continuing to just throw all kinds of insults and accusations against him. Finally, what happens is Herod gets frustrated. I mean, this isn't the entertainment I expected. This isn't the fun I expected to happen when I finally get a chance to meet Jesus. So maybe I don't want to question him anymore. We read this. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in, a splen- in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Herod is just frustrated with Jesus. This is the king of the Jews. I was hoping he'd be more impressive. But he's a beaten, bloodied, and disfigured man who won't even answer a question. So eventually Herod takes and puts a fancy robe on him and sends him back to Pilate. Here's your king of the Jews guy. Doesn't look like a real winner to me. And then what happens is is this. I mean, why did Herod ultimately send Jesus back? Why did Herod not do anything to Jesus? I'll tell you why. Because as far as Herod is concerned, Jesus is innocent. There's no charges against him. Now we come to our next paragraph in the Gospel of Mark. We see here that Jesus will die in the place of a sinner. Before we get into this section, like I gave you background on Herod a few moments ago, I should give you some background on Pilate. This background on Pilate will make what happens next much greater sense. Pilate... uh, had ruled the area of Jerusalem from the year, if I believe correctly, it was 25 A.D. through 36 A.D. And the Jews were a very difficult people for him to govern. He got off on a bad foot with them right from day one. When he came into town, he came into town with, with Roman soldiers, Roman banners, and flags. Flags that had a picture of Caesar on it and an eagle on it, and he hung those up around town. His idea was, hey, I'm in town, let's be patriotic. The Jews didn't take it that way. They took that as an insult. Remember, Caesar was considered a god. They considered Here was Pilate putting false gods, idols, all over town. Didn't get off to a good beginning with them. Because the city was in unrest, Pilate went off to the area of Caesarea, but a huge number of Jews followed him over there. Finally, after five days of being harassed by the Jews, on his first week of work, he said, Guys, you knock it off or I'm going to kill all of you. In which case, all the Jews that were there, we're talking hundreds of them, all bared their necks and said, make my day. And as a result, Pilate backed down. Not a good way to start your job, having to kill hundreds of Jews. So right there, the relationship between the two, Pilate and the Jews, was not good. Later on in his rule, the water supply of Jerusalem was inadequate. The aqueduct had to be upgraded. Rather than have Rome pay for it, he had his soldiers break into the Jewish temple and steal the money out of the the treasury. 
and then have the Jews pay for it. Do you think the Jews like that, having the temple broken into and their money stolen? Absolutely not. Once again, they started to riot. This time he sent his soldiers among them who beat them, clubbed them, and stabbed them. Here's the problem. It had gotten back to Rome that Pilate doesn't seem to handle the Jews very good, especially when they riot. He tends to be a little bit ruthless with them. Rome had a law, and this is, I'm saying this sort of tongue-in-cheek, it's a three strikes and you're out law. Uh, He had two strikes against him already. Rome was watching Pilate for how he would handle things. Only three years after this, Pilate will be relieved of his duties leading leading the Jews in Rome. Pilate is doing everything he can to keep the Jews happy and not have a riot so he can keep his job. Knowing that is the background, that'll make what happens next, it'll explain it, would make much better sense. We'll begin in Luke 23. Pilate called them together, the chief priests, the rulers of the people, and said to them, You brought me this man who as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Well, this doesn't seem to make much sense. If Jesus is innocent of all charges... Why would you punish him and then release him? Who does he have to keep happy? The Jews. Or they are going to cook his goose. That's why he's going to punish an innocent person. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. This this is typical. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card that was often took place For the Jewish people, Um, Pilate figures, they love Jesus. I mean, didn't the triumphal entry just happen on Monday? Wasn't everybody singing his praises? This is how I can get this innocent man free. While the Jewish leaders want him dead, I know the Jewish people just rave about him, constantly sing his praise. So what I can do is ask the Jewish people, who do you want me to set free? Obviously, they're going to choose Jesus. And then it says, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. He's described in the other Gospels as a robber. He's described as a murderer. He's described as a revolutionary. Luke calls him a notable prisoner. He had committed murder in the insurrection, which obviously had taken place shortly before this. While the Jews were a little slower in their executions, Romans traditionally were very quick in their executions. If you killed somebody, you went up on a cross very shortly thereafter. Quite honestly, Barabbas is the one who should have been on the middle cross between the two thieves executed that morning. That's where he was probably going to be. 
And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Give us our free prisoner. And he answered them, saying, Well, do you want for me to release to you the king of the Jews? You see what's going on here? Pilate is suggesting to them the prisoner that he wants to release to them because he knows that Jesus is completely innocent of all charges. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. And then we go to Matthew. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. The evidence is adding up. Pilate knows he is innocent. Herod knows he is innocent. Now Pilate's wife sends him a message. He is innocent. Have nothing to do with him. Wash your hands of him. Get away from him. And then we go back to the Gospel of Mark. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Barabbas, the notorious criminal, the murderer, the thief, he is the one that is set free. While Jesus, who is innocent of all charges, is the one who will die in his place. Do you see the great exchange that Andy talked about this morning? It's happening right here. Continue in the Gospel of Mark. And Pilate again said to them, Well, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! This is another attempt by Pilate to get Jesus off the hook. What should I do with the king of the Jews? He's innocent. He doesn't expect them to say, crucify him. What happened is sort of modern politics. The Jewish leaders had inserted themselves among the Jewish people and had spread their lies about Jesus, their non-truths about Jesus, to stir the people up against Jesus. And what is the one thing that Pilate is afraid of that he does not want to get in trouble with again? A riot. A mob. And the Jewish leaders have played it that way. They've stirred up a riot. They've stirred up a mob. Pilate continues, or it continues, and Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Now we read this. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Does that sound familiar? Wishing to satisfy the crowd? Matthew tells us the same thing. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, 
he took water and washed his hands before the crowd and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Political checkmate. The Jewish leaders have riled up the crowd. They're starting to riot. That's the one thing Pilate cannot have happen because if Rome hears about it, he will be recalled and lose his job at this point. So he lets things go through. Mark mentions this, that he was scourged before he was crucified. Now what does scourging mean? Uh, This is something that may be a little disturbing, but it's just historically accurate. Scourging took place with something called a cat of nine tails. It was a wooden handled, um, wooden handle with multiple strands of leather on it. Uh, sometimes they call it nine tails. And in that leather, there were hooks, metal hooks. There was metal balls designed to bruise. And there was pieces of bone designed to introduce infection. And there were two lictors, which were essentially the executioners in that. One on each side. And they take this and they whip it across onto the back and then they tear it through the back. First from one side and then the other side. Typically, people had their hands chained to a stump in front of them. Though historically, sometimes they had their hands chained over them during that. Sometimes they were chained onto a table with their hands and feet having stretched them out. Oftentimes we've learned that uh, they could only give 40 lashes. They wouldn't give more. And some of my research I ran across this week is that the 40 lashes was typically limited by the Jews, but the Romans did not limit to 40 lashes. That after being scourged, there was so much flesh torn off of a back and muscle torn off of a back that historical accounts I ran across would show that bones were being exposed. Ribs had been torn out of the body. That when a person would stand up, their internal organs would drape out their back. This is what Jesus went through. His face had been beaten to the point of disfigurement by the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now his body was beaten to the point of disfigurement. It was torn and shredded by the Romans. And then we read that Jesus was mocked. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. We've learned that this word battalion is the Greek word spirion, which is one-tenth of a Roman legion, which is an entire group of 600 soldiers. Why are there 600 soldiers around Jesus? Is it to guard him because he's a dangerous criminal? He's helpless. Face beaten to a pulp. Body torn completely to shreds. Why did they come together around Jesus? To mock Jesus. To laugh at Jesus. This is the king. The king of the Jews. Or as Jesus said, I'm a king. Just not like you're thinking of a king, Pilate. A different kind of king. The king who is dying for his people. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Uh, This is interesting. It says in Mark they put a purple cloak on him. But if you look at the other Gospels, uh, if you look at Matthew, for instance, it says they put a red cloak on him. 
Matthew 27, 28. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. So is this an error in the Bible? That one gospel writer says it was purple, another gospel writer says it was red? What color was it? Actually, the answer is easier than you might realize. It was a Roman soldier's cloak, which originally starts out as red. But their dyeing process of coloring in fabric is not nearly as robust and color-fixed as our dyeing process is today as we do clothing. So a Roman soldier's cloak, as it became older, it faded in the sun from a red color to sort of a reddish-purple color. The fact it's a purple cloak shows it's an older Roman soldier cloak. They put onto his back, and his body had been shredded. Now all the blood would soak into it. So when they tore that cloak off, they would tear the scab off the wounds of his body. Then they took a crown of thorns. These are tree thorns, long thorns, sometimes up to six inches in length, wove it together and pressed it into his head. So the blood ran down his face and ran down his neck. This is his bruised, disfigured, and beaten face. Matthew tells us this. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his hand. What are they trying to make it look like? A king. A king. They're mocking him as a king. Some kind of king you are. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! And then Mark says, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down to pay homage to him. This word for reed, you might think it's sort of a, a flimsy thing. It wasn't a flimsy thing. It's the same word used to describe a stick of bamboo. It's a bamboo stick that they are taking and they're whacking him in the head pounding that crown of thorns deeper into his head. Incredible mockery, incredible abuse. And then it says, they were spitting on him. Spitting is a way to be insulting to people. But here's what I want you to picture. How many people were surrounded him, mocking him, striking with a reed and spitting on him? You remember? Six hundred covering him with saliva and spit. Isaiah prophetically speaks about this hundreds of years before it takes place. Isaiah 50, verse 6. And I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, and I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. John says this, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Here's another attempt right before the cross, that Jesus tries, or Pilate tries to set 
Jesus free. Here he is. His body has been just torn to shreds. His face has been beaten to a pulp. He's been beaten in the head with this crown of thorns. This is your king. I see no guilt in him. Doesn't look like a threat to Rome to me. Let him go. Now Isaiah says this about him at this point. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What did Jesus look like at this moment? The question was not, who is this? But the question was, what is this? He no longer even looked, at Isaiah says, like a human being at this point. He had been so beaten and so shredded. So Jesus came out, John says, wearing, um, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. This is your king. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to him, said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Again, Pilate tries to get him off the hook. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Wait a minute. Finally, the truth comes out. This has nothing to do with Jesus telling people not to pay their taxes. This has nothing to do with Jesus trying to usurp Caesar as king. This has to do with the fact that Jesus called himself the very Son of God. John says this, And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. You see the political manipulation there? Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour. We're now up to 6 a.m. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. Your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over the, to them to be crucified. And that brings us to our last verse in Mark. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And next week, we'll pick up at the crucifixion. But what can we learn to take into this week? Two simple points. Number one, when the world is falling apart, God is still in complete control. When the world is falling apart, isn't God still in complete control? Sort of felt like the world was falling apart around Jesus. Political manipulation, uh, Pilate is having his arm twisted to crucify Jesus. Uh, people are lying about Jesus. They're beating Jesus. 
yet what this is the way that God the Father had it all planned. He was going to take the sin of the Jews and the sin of Pilate, incorporate it into his good plan, and let it become the way that Jesus would go to the cross and save you and me. And I would apply it this way to our lives. I don't know what's going on in your world right now. I don't know how your world is falling apart. I don't know how people are doing politics in your work. I don't know how things are being manipulated. But while it may look like things are out of control, I guarantee you they are not. God is still in control. He still has a good plan. And just as he was in control and he used the evil against Jesus to accomplish his good plan for Jesus, he'll take the evil done against you and he'll build upon it to accomplish his good plan for you. We always have hope as God's sons and daughters. The second thing that comes out of here, just screaming out of here, is Jesus' trial before Pilate shows the gospel story. Barabbas, who is the one who is a murderer, who is guilty of sin, who should have been on the cross that day, was set free. Jesus died in Barabbas's place. And that's what he came to do, isn't it? To die in our place for our sin. Because every single one of us is truly Barabbas. The mission of Crossman's Church is to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. This week, will you tell someone the good news of Jesus Christ? That he came to die in your place for your sin? To bring you to God and completely free you from your sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for your word. Thank you for what you went through, Jesus, for us. At any time when you were being beaten and tortured and disfigured, you could have said, enough is enough. But you didn't. You embraced it. You endured it. You suffered through it, knowing that you were doing it all out of love for us, to die for us, to take away our sin. Thank you for enduring all the abuse you went through in the Roman trial all to save us. We are so appreciative because we truly are Barabbas and undeserving of your kindness and truth. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.